0: I'm Jonathan Leap. I'm the Executive Director of the International Growth Center. It's a pleasure to have you all with us. Uh, We're very pleased this evening to have a session focused on energy, an issue that, of course, is absolutely fundamental to the challenges of growth. If we look at countries like Pakistan or Nigeria, we see that estimates suggest that the lack of a reliable supply of energy costs more than 2% of GDP, so it's a big issue for growth, and there are a lot of issues that are not well understood in terms of how we can begin to address that and, and bring these countries up tor- towards their growth potential. For those of you who haven't uh, been here earlier in Growth Week, let me just say what's particularly uh, exciting about this panel this evening is that it brings together exactly what the IGC is all about, that is a leading academic who will talk about the kind of challenges and ideas in this field and about where we're moving in research, but then three very distinguished panellists from the policy side and, of course, also international here. And I'll leave it to the chair for this evening, Robin Burgess, to introduce them, but just to say that really what the IGC is all about is trying to bring together research and policy, and events like this are very much at the heart of what we want to be doing. i just close by saying how important energy is uh, to uh, the IGC. It really is it's one of our new themes that became, came in as part of a new research strategy that was developed a year ago today. Uh, and there's a lot of exciting work now being done, and uh, this evening is really a taster for that. And we hope those of you who are doing research yourselves uh, will uh, look into our call for proposals, which will come out next month, We're looking for exciting research projects across Africa and Asia in this area of of energy and we have a lot of questions that need uh, researching and and there's materials on the web, on the IGC website that you can find in terms of our own research strategy, but we would welcome uh, your applications. So with that, let me hand over to Professor Robin Burgess.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, So I'm Robin Burgess. I'm Director of the IGC. So um, we have a pretty exciting lineup tonight. Uh, let me begin by just um, talking a little bit about Michael Greenstone. So I've known Michael for, I guess, probably since about 2005 when we were both visiting the University of California, Berkeley. And what I can tell you is I am going to just say two things about him before, t- you know, going through the standard achievements. The first is that I kind of owe a debt of gratitude to Michael because it turns out that my first degree was in biology and then I went off and did development. And I'd always want to reconnect back to environmental, economics, energy and so forth. And Michael really has been the person who's been instrumental in allowing me to do that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that Michael Greenstone is probably the best environmental economists in the world. And I'll tell you why I think that. And it's a very uh, concrete metric. So I'm the the chair of the senior uh, recruitment committee for the Department of Economics at the LSE. So I try to hire professors to come and work in the economics department. And for some time, we've been looking for somebody in environmental uh, and energy economics. So what you do if you're in my position is you call up all the top universities in America, like Harvard, Princeton... Stanford, And what everybody would say is, you know, say, we want to hire somebody in this area. And they'd all say, why don't you hire Michael Greenstone? And you'll say, well, we've tried. Uh, and, then, and then they say, any other suggestions? Well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, that, that sort of, you know, brought to mind how privileged we are not just to have him this evening, but also to have him directing the uh, with Nick Ryan from Yale, the IGC uh, energy research program. And I think the other thing just to, to mention is that energy economics, if you want to call it that, is really not a mainstream field within, within uh, uh, economics. And yet it will sort of gather this evening. It's empirically incredibly important. So it's one of those fields where the academic research that's not caught up with the importance of the subject. In the U.S. anyway it was always parceled off into these ag and resource uh, economics departments. And so one of the sort of big ambitions of the IGC is to bring it right back into the mainstream of uh, economics. But let me just now turn to some of Michael's uh, achievements. He's just moved to Chicago as the uh, Milton Friedman Professor of Economics and also heads up the Uh, Energy Policy Institute at Chicago. But I think what's also interesting about him is that, as with the IGC, he's kind of done more than write papers. So he spent uh, a year as chief economist for President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, where he's heavily involved in the whole climate policy debate of the U.S., and then subsequently was head of the Hamilton Project, which is a Policy uh, think tank, which is very focused on how to create equitable growth within within the U.S. So the the format this evening is that Michael will speak, will give us a a public lecture about 40 minutes, and then we are going to move to our very distinguished panel uh, who will try to connect what Michael says, particularly in in terms of policy, to what's happening in in three countries. So, to begin with, we have Sanjay Singh, who is the uh, Secretary of the Chief Minister in the government of Bihar, but is also the Managing Director of the Bihar State Power Transmission Company. And he will capture, I hope, some of the excitement of what is going on in Bihar in terms of the power sector. But to give you some flavor, In August 2013, the then Chief Minister Nitish Kumar, who is the architect of the great reforms in Bihar, announced publicly that unless the uh, situation as regards access to electricity for Bihari citizens improves significantly, he would not seek their votes. In other words, he would not stand for election. And that immediately, when I heard that, I said, we've got to work on Bihar, because suddenly the political will was aligned with the, uh, with the policy of uh, expanding access. So Sanjay will, will connect what Michael says to, to, to the heart. And then secondly, we have Irfan Elahi, who is one of the most senior uh, uh, civil servants in uh, the government of Punjab. He's currently chairman of the Planning and Development Board and is deeply knowledgeable about the energy sector, not just in uh, the Punjab, but also in Pakistan more generally, where the most famous figure that is always quoted is that the power outages in Pakistan uh, lead to a 2% reduction in, uh, in GDP growth. And then last but not least, we have Kaikas Ahmed, who is additional secretary from the Power Division in the Ministry of Power, Energy and Mineral Resources in Bangladesh. Kaikas holds a PhD in political economy, and will, again, connect us to the the situation in in Bangladesh, which has become quite critical given falling gas supplies and the need to have greater generation as well as to deal with demand management. So what we're hoping will happen is we'll have uh, short presentations by the panel members following Michael's speech, and then we'll have some discussion within the panel, and then we'll throw the, the floor open and you will be free to ask Whatever questions uh, you wish to ask. But let me first uh, pass the questions uh, uh, to Michael Greenstone. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Robin, for such a uh, generous introduction. Uh, I can only repay it. Uh, I'm tempted to tell a joke at Robin's expense. But uh, rather than do that, I'll just note, uh, my wife thinks that uh, going to faculty dinners is uh, not worse than death, but in the in picture. Uh, and when we got to know Robin and his wife, Bronwyn, in uh, Berkeley, uh, Those were not just dinners that she wanted to avoid, but rather she was constantly, well, when are we going to get to see them next? Uh, And so uh, both Catherine and I feel uh, very fondly about Robin and Robin. Okay, and I also want to just say uh, it is true that energy economics has not uh, maybe been a mainstream field, but Nick Ryan and I are going to change that through the IGC. Uh, And so we'll start talking about that tonight. So let me – this will work. Okay, excellent. Uh, so seven facts about energy and growth and some policy implications. So I thought I would start with a picture uh, uh, following uh, the idea that a picture is worth a thousand words. So I've divided the things. So I'm a, I like numbers. Pictures make me uncomfortable. Uh, but I do think pictures convey a lot of information, can convey a lot of information. Uh, and I think this one is Strangely captures most of the things that I want to try and get across uh, tonight So I'll start with there's four things that I want you to be able that you can see that I want you to be able to see in this picture uh, The first is we got a guy riding a bike in a bike lane. He's, in, he's this is in China That's number one Number two on the other side of that bike line big bike, bike lane is a road uh, And you have a bunch of cars uh, we by uh, going by very quickly Although it's not really in the picture, you can see it wasn't really very long ago that there were bikes on the road part of that. Uh, this is China, long history of riding bikes. Uh, and then the fourth thing that is obvious in this picture is the incredible level of air pollution. Uh, you, can, you can see it. Uh, any of you have been to Beijing or some, uh, other Chinese cities, there's days, days go by and you can't see the sun. Um, So those, and why is he wearing the mask, you know, and why is the air so polluted? It's got this particulates, air pollution. We'll talk about that, but it's uh, very dangerous for human health. Okay, there's two things that I wanted to unpack from this picture that you can't see, uh, but that I think are at least as important as the four things we could see. Uh, The first is carbon dioxide is being released all over the place. Uh, It's coming out of that car, uh, it's coming out of the power plant, the coal—probably the coal-fired power plant—that's producing all the electricity in that city, uh, and it's changing the planet. Uh, the second thing that you can't see uh, are the energy prices, uh, and so this is where the economics comes in. And why? Are, and as we all know from blackboard economics, everyone wakes up in the morning takes a look at their utility function, takes a look at their budget constraint, takes a look at relative prices, and they decide what to do. Uh, And what I'm going to argue today uh, is that a lot of what you can see in this picture is a consequence of choices about energy prices, Uh, and that there's a lot of room for improvement in the way we price energy around the world. Uh, and it's, it's, it, it, those decisions are inextricably linked to growth, uh, growth broadly defined. All right. And then the last thing, uh, which I guess uh, economists are uncomfortable with feelings. Uh, so we talked about things that you can see, things that you can't see. Here's one thing that I think you can feel. That guy is racing like crazy. And in the blink of an eye, he's no longer going to be on a bike. Uh, he's going to be in a car. And there's going to be an incredible increase in energy demand from that man in this picture uh, and around the world. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit today about how to manage all that. Okay. So that was the whole talk. Uh, We'll now go through some details. Uh, These are kind of traditional pictures that you should be, you know, probably have seen one way or another before. Uh, This is the planet with uh, population density per people per square mile, <coughs> different colors. Uh, the, we have 13 as the 25th percentile and 194 is the 75th percentile. Obvious thing to do in a talk like this is to contrast it with where the lights are. And it's, what's striking is that you got lots of people in lots of places where there aren't any lights. Uh, and this energy access uh, is, is a critical feature of growth. And, in fact, the seven facts that are going to get us to our policy implications, number one is energy is critical to growth. Uh, And when I made the following graph that I'm about to show you, I had no hopes that it would look as beautiful as it does. Uh, But, indeed, here I've graphed log uh, GDP per capita, that's on the y-axis, against log total primary energy consumption per capita. And I just, you know, I, I pulled out some countries there. For you to take a look at. But the striking feature is how tight that relationship is. You know, you're used to seeing, anyone who's used data is used to seeing the line and then all kinds of dots all around it. But here the dots are really tightly linked. Uh, and the point I want to make is there's, uh, it's very, very difficult uh, to achieve high levels of income. Uh, if you looked at this, you might say impossible without lots of energy consumption. Uh, the second fact uh, to try and take on is that energy access uh, is a major problem around the world. We've looked at that already. We'll t- take another slightly deeper dive here. Well, you might look at this and you'll just start and say, and this was actually my view before I started to work in this area is, well, I thought I th- the real problem was that uh, people weren't connected to the grid. And what we needed to do was like a good old infrastructure project and get some wires and uh, get some poles. And it, everything would be fine. And in fact, uh, this contradicts this. You know, not everywhere, but in lots of the world, many parts of the world, there are lines everywhere. And in, depending on how you count it, even in areas that have incredibly low levels of energy consumption, there's lines. And so the problem is not that there's not lines, although in some countries that, uh, that is a problem. The problem is that people are not getting electricity off those lines. Um, and... Uh, so the 25th percentile. This is ranking countries. You know, people only consume uh, 860 kilowatt hours uh, per year. So, what what is a kilowatt hour? Let's try and put that into focus here a little bit. So, uh, a 60 watt bulb uh, that runs for uh, six hours a day uh, would consume about 131 kilowatt hours uh, for in, over the course of a full year. Now, I have just selectively put some countries up there, and it, it's shocking. Uh, so the United States per capita electricity consumption is about 13,246. This might be a year too old. The United States has 312 million people. If you want to know China's electricity consumption, it's pretty easy. You just divide by four. Uh, and that's about 3,000. Now, does China, does that man on that bike want to stay there, or does he want to have more? I, I think the answer is that he would like to have more. And if you want to know India's uh, Per capita electricity consumption. You can divide by four again. Uh, So India's is about 116th of what it is in the United States. Uh, In Bihar, a state of 100 million people, we'll talk more about Bihar, average electricity consumption is about 122 uh, per capita. Uh, So the average person has less than one bulb six hours a day. Perhaps not surprisingly, uh, energy uh, consumption is projected to grow rapidly in developing countries in the coming decades. Here's uh, the percentage change in total energy consumption by OECD status. The blue line is uh, OECD countries. You can see between now and 2040, maybe there'll be a 10% increase uh, in energy consumption. In contrast, in the non-OECD countries, there'll be about a doubling uh, in the next 30 years. So If you want to study energy, if you're interested in energy, if you're interested in, and we'll talk more about it later, uh, if you're interested in climate change, there's nowhere to go uh, but the developing countries. Uh, That's where all the action is. Okay. Uh, The fourth fact. Fossil fuels are projected to provide most of the growth. Uh, So what are fossil fuels? You should think of them as coal, coal. Natural gas, petroleum, uh, and they're the things that release uh, when they're uh, through combustion, release carbon dioxide, which is causing climate change, and largely cause uh, the particulates uh, that are a source of uh, human health that we'll talk more about. So why are we going to use uh, why are we going to use fossil fuels going forward? Well, the first, is uh, another picture that you could look at for a long time. There's a whole lot of coal in the world. Uh, in fact, there's, as much coal, there's coal further than the eye can see in this picture. Uh, and coal, it turns out, was an incredible invention in terms of uh, finding an inexpensive way to produce electricity. And the world is just stocked with coal. The second uh, is a technology that was introduced or discovered in the United States within the last decade. And I don't, I, it has not made its, uh, there are reserves around the world, but it has not made its way around the world uh, in the way that it has in the United States yet, uh, but something called fracturing. Uh, and I put up a, 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 p- this picture of a traditional vertical well. Uh, this is in the Bakken Shields in North Dakota and the way you would drill traditionally is you spend several million dollars uh, you drill straight down you try and break into the rock horizontally and you hope there's something there and quite often people hit dry wells Uh, what fracturing did or hydraulic fracturing is you go straight down it's got it's incredible technology You go straight down then you go over I don't know how they do that with the drill Uh, and then you shoot water and chemicals in there, and you cause these fractures up and down all over around the, little, uh, around the drilling hole. Um, it turned out to be remarkably successful in shale rock uh, for recovering both liquids, pe- per, uh, petroleum, uh, and natural gas. And in fact, uh, there's no longer much risk associated with drilling. There's some risk in how much you'll get out, but there's no longer much risk uh, that you'll end up with a dry well. The guys in the industry call it farming. And it's the most important change in the energy industry, I I think, since uh, the advent of nuclear power in producing electricity. It's completely changed. Uh, It it is a game changer. And let me try and put some numbers to convince you, around that, to convince you that that's the case. Uh, So the first is uh, this is from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Uh, the red areas are assessed basins uh, with resource estimates. And the, let's see, I guess, oranges areas are assessed basins without resource estimates. So those are these are known shale formations around the world. Uh, thus far, we've really only taken advantage of these guys. Uh, and they're everywhere. That means there's going to be natural gas everywhere uh, in ways that were completely unimaginable. Uh, five years ago or even 10 years ago. And a lot more petroleum as well. So what does it all add up to uh, if you want to do some accounting of how much uh, gas uh, and petroleum there is? I just listed here the top 10 countries uh, with technically recoverable uh, shale oil resources and the top 10 countries with technically recoverable shale gas uh, resources. And at the bottom, I added it all up looks like there's about 350 billion barrels of shale oil uh, available to be recovered. Currently we consume about 32 billion, so that's like saying we have an extra 10 years of petroleum supply that just completely fell out of the sky uh, relative to five years ago. In the case of natural gas, we were completely swimming in natural gas, again in a way that was unimaginable. Uh, if you add it all up, first of all, the U.S., which is exploiting it uh, like mad right now, probably has half the reserves uh, that China does. Now, China has not found a way to access them uh, yet, and there, there are some technical barriers, but I, I can assure you that there's lots of guys from Texas who are in China right now uh, trying to help them figure out how to do it. And if you add it all up, there's about 70 extra years of natural gas. So, you know, when... Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, there was all kinds of uh, – a huge part of the discussion was energy independence uh, and, uh, in, you know, the, were we going to be beholden to the world for petroleum and natural gas, and indeed we were building all kinds of import terminals for natural gas. In five or six years, that's completely turned around. We're now building export terminals to get rid of all the extra natural, natural gas. Uh, and the discussion of energy independence is uh, largely moot. As you'll see, or if you, those of you who are climate change fans, uh, you'll you'll see that if you're doing the math here. This is the world's, and I'll try and make this a little more concrete as so we we'll go along. But the world's supply of carbon also went up by a lot, uh, and that's going to pose a challenge. So if we were to try and put some numbers or estimates around what does this mean for carbon emissions. Uh, Here we've broken it out and just like you would see with the uh, energy consumption, broken it out, OECD countries are the blue guys uh, and the non-OECD are the green countries. And you can see really I guess between 2010 uh, and 2040 there'd be about a doubling uh, in carbon emissions coming from developing countries. Again, reflecting that most of the growth in energy consumption is expected to come from uh, uh, fossil fuels. Okay. So, now I've spoiled these next two facts, but I think you knew them anyways. Why is it so relevant? Why am I talking about the fact that uh, the energy consumption growth is going to come from fossil fuels? Uh, Well, there's two main reasons, and the first is fact five. Uh, The first is that fossil fuels lead to high levels of air pollution uh, that shorten lives uh, around the world. And so, we'll try. Let me talk a little bit uh, about a paper I wrote with several colleagues uh, of mine. Uh, And this this paper is uh, was published about a year ago. Okay, and what the paper does. So, just to uh, 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 you know, the challenge for empirical economists is often to find a way to infer a causal relationship uh, out of observational data. And so what this paper did was take advantage of uh, that China has started a winter heating system uh, back in the planning period. It was established in the 1950 to 1980 period. And that was a period when China was much less wealthy than it is now. And there wasn't enough money uh, to provide heating for the whole country. And so somewhat capriciously and arbitrarily, they drew a line across the middle of the country, uh, which follows uh, the Huai River. That's roughly the zero-degree line uh, in January. It doesn't, above it goes below zero C, and below, uh, south of it doesn't in January. Uh, and what they did is they installed all kinds of uh, uh, boilers to provide uh, heating. And they were all uh, powered by coal. Uh, and that policy operates during winter from uh, roughly November fifteenth uh, to March fifteenth In fact, the policy is still in place in many northern cities and uh, uh, The only thing that has changed is that in the south it 's no longer uh, heating is no longer forbidden, but for a long period of time it was forbidden and indeed, I, went, I once gave a lecture in January or February in Chengdu, which is a southern city but very uh, near uh, but uh, it 's south of the Huai River, but Uh, at the same time uh, very close to it. And all the students were wearing winter coats. Uh, There was no heating in the building. Okay, and the key thing again is that the coal for these boilers uh, was heavily subsidized and most frequently provided for free. Uh, And so indeed you would have, here's pictures, uh, of residential chimneys. Uh, And the yellow line there is the Huai River. Uh, Again, places to the north were granted this free coal for their boilers for winter heating, and places to the south largely didn't have it. Uh, and the idea of this paper is to compare the life expectancies of people who live just to the north versus people who live just to the south. And The, the first finding, which is pretty dramatic, uh, is that indeed there were very large differences in particulate concentrations uh, to the north of the line versus to the south. The green bubbles are, uh, are are the the northern cities, and you can count on the x-axis uh, degrees north of uh, the Y River boundary, uh, to, uh, latitude, and the blue ones are uh, the blue ones are cities to the south. You know this is the kind of data that people are uh, empirical people are used to working with. It, it doesn't fit the line quite as perfectly uh, as it did for GDP and energy. Uh, but nevertheless, you can, one can see there's a very large jump right at the line. Now, this one was not quite as robust, but still there in the data. is There's also an estimated change in life expectancy. And so what you can see is that as you're in the south uh, and you're getting more and more north, uh, it looks like life expectancy uh, is starting to go up as you get close to it. And then all of a sudden there's a jump down uh, right at uh, the Kwai River boundary. Uh, And that jump is worth about five years uh, of life. What's important, uh, you know, again, this uh, does not look uh, exactly perfect, but what's important, I think, helps build the case for this is all of that increase in excess mortality is coming through uh, increases in cardiorespiratory causes of death, not uh, non-cardiorespiratory. Okay. Uh, I've now switched on you uh, from China to India Uh, And I just want to highlight, why did I do that? Well, that's because air pollution in India... China's not the only country with air pollution problems. Uh, And here's a picture of India where there's very high levels uh, of particulates concentrations as well. Uh, And in fact, one can, using satellite images, come up with estimates of uh, global PM2.5 concentrations. So That's just a form of particulates. Uh, In this case, red is bad. Uh, You can see the north of China. Uh, You can see the northern ring of India, Uh, and you can see other places in Asia with very high levels. Uh, You can also see high levels uh, in Africa and parts of uh, South America. Uh, So what what I wanted to try and make this risk concrete, uh, I put together uh, with uh, some colleagues a couple numbers. Uh, so the first is, well, so how bad was that increase, uh, that decrease in life expectancy in northern China? Uh, if you compare folks in northern China to southern China, they're losing, on, they're losing in the process of losing about 2.5 billion life years. It's about five years per person. There's about 500 million people there. Now, the levels are very high in the South, too, so there's probably some impact on people in the South. But people in the north of China, relative to people in the South, are losing about uh, 2.5 billion life years. Uh, We did a similar exercise uh, for India as well. And there the idea was to just take those estimates from China uh, and uh, extrapolate them to India. And there the exercise was, suppose we brought every place in India that exceeds India's national ambient air quality standards, which are denoted right there, and brought them uh, down to the level of national. So brought everyone into compliance with what India's standards were. If you did that, uh, you would save about 2.1 billion life years. So these are not trivial figures. Uh, These are something as ubiquitous as the air, and what's in the air is drastically shortening uh, the lives of many hundreds of millions of people, uh, and it's a consequence of the energy uh, choices we make. Okay. It's also worth uh, uh, the second reason that I wanted to talk about fossil fuels and why, fossil, uh, why the projected substantial increase in the consumption of fossil fuels pose a risk uh, is that fossil fuels are causing climate change. Uh, here's the mean temperature on the planet uh, in 2013, or mean temperature change on the planet in 2013, relative to 1880. Uh, it's not completely visible, but you get the idea that the red areas are having, I think, up to two degrees C uh, change so far, and uh, the yellow areas smaller. And it, it's understood that at the higher latitudes, uh, there's going to be uh, there's h- higher changes. If we wanted to go further out, here's the predicted change in global temperature based on six scenarios from the IPCC. The blue line is uh, the meaning of those scenarios. And under a, this is under a di- different assumptions about the degree of climate, uh, of CO2 mitigation that the world will engage in. But what's striking is the planet's going to get a whole lot hotter. Uh, and uh, I think anyone who's reading uh, the accounts from New York and uh, Climate Week, I think uh, you know, there might be some hope that there will be a climate change policy, but I don't think anyone should think that we're going to drastically bend this curve uh, in, in the coming years. A different way to show this, uh, which actually is a way that's a little bit easier for me to relate to, uh, is rather than look at the global average, uh, is to look at, well, how, f- how often are we going to get really hot days? Uh, and in this graph, uh, the blue bars are the number of days uh, that, here I'm looking at India, that India currently gets, uh, that the average Indian gets in different temperature ranges. Uh, and uh, these are uh, three-degree-wide temperature ranges, so the bottom one is uh, less than 49, and then it goes 49 to 52, 52 to 54, et cetera, all the way up to greater than 97. And what you can see is that the median, uh, the modal day for an Indian is uh, the temperature somewhere between 79 and 81. And I want to be clear, uh, when when we look at that, uh, that's the average of the high and the low. It's not, it's not just a high temperature. So those are, that's already a pretty hot day. Uh, and then you can see the average Indian gets a couple days a year where it's greater than 97 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Okay, so that's the current historical distribution from 1957 to 2000. What the red bars are is the distribution of days at the end of the century under a kind of no climate change uh, plan. And what's striking is you have this huge increase uh, in the number of days uh, beginning in the 85 to 87 range. So that would go from roughly 30 days per year to maybe 55 days per year. Uh, And the number of days where it's going to be greater than 97, that's an exceedingly hot day. Again, that's the average of the high and the low, uh, would go from maybe three or four days to maybe 15 days. And why that's so important, because a change in the average global temperature's It's a little hard to interpret. But all the bad stuff is associated with the really hot days. Not all. Most of the bad stuff is associated with the very hot days. Uh, And this should give one pause. So now I'm going to borrow, and this uh, from some of my uh, work with Robin uh, and Dave Donaldson and Olivier Deschens, to try to estimate, well, what would happen if we suddenly had temperatures like that? Uh, and here uh, just as I was trying to look at well-being through uh, more uh, life expectancy, here this is using data from India from 1950 to roughly 2000 uh, and we're asking the question what happens if we swap the day from the 70 to 72 range and moved it to any of these other uh, ranges and we're we're asking what would happen to agricultural yields in India and just as a reminder remember there's going to be a lot more of these days at the high end and what you can see is that one day, moving from the 70-72 range, say, to the uh, greater than 97 range, would reduce annual agricultural yields by a half a percentage point. Uh, really quite a large one. And just, you know, if you're doing the math, think of how many extra, there's about 10 extra days there. Uh, and that's just for the greater than 97 bit. You could also look at uh, what happens in mortality in India. Uh, and that's the full red line. Uh, And again, it's the same exercise. It's comparing, uh, so let's just ignore the blue line for a minute, but it's comparing what happens uh, if you swap a day from the 70 to 72 range and move it to any of these other ones. And again, there's this terribly striking and uncomfortable finding, uh, which is that if you move one of those days, say, to the greater than uh, the 95 to 97 range, you're going to have about a half a percentage point increase in the annual mortality rate. Uh, if and uh, you know it 's a little bit higher if you go to greater than ninety seven and so the point is these this tremendous increase in energy consumption uh, that 's coming in the developing countries that 's needed in the developing countries for growth we 're on a path to getting there by using fossil fuels, and that 's going to produce this um, it 's also worth noting so why is it going to produce that uh, i 'd like to I like, the way I like to say this uh, is it the world's history of leaving valuable resources, let's call them $100 bills. I guess we're uh, in the uh, UK, so we should say 100-pound 100, uh, uh, 100 notes buried in the ground. The world's history of that is a very, very thin book. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Uh, and if you want to know how much we have to leave in the ground, This is a back of the envelope calculation. Uh, uh, The height of this is uh, gigatons of CO2. Uh, If the scientists are right and we shouldn't go above two degrees Celsius, uh, then we can spend about uh, a thousand gigatons of CO2. Uh, We've already used some of this, uh, some of that thousand already, but not a whole lot. And what's the problem? Well, the problem is we have 3,600 gigatons of that already, uh, you know, technically recoverable. Uh, and so just to hold the two degrees, you know, it means all of, this, all of these fossil fuels, someone is going, all of us, not someone, all of us are going to have to leave them buried in the ground. And, uh, you know, this is my estimate, but I think this is the gain from fracking uh, so far. This is uh, what has been unle- on you know, dropped into the system as further stuff that can't be used if you want to stay uh, below uh, two degrees. Of course it could be used if we had some kind can- of capture program in place, but that's not, uh, that's not technically feasible at this point. It's also important to note that uh, restraining climate change is going to have to be a global project. I made this graph a couple years ago. Uh, it's actually increasingly irrelevant. Uh, it looks at, uh, you know, a time path of a mish- of uh, atmospheric concentrations of uh, 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 CO2. That's the uh, dotted line. Uh, and this was back when the U.S. was by far the biggest emitter. Uh, if the U.S. adopted something like it promised in Copenhagen or something like there's been bills about in Congress that haven't passed, to be clear, uh, you know, it would bring down atmospheric concentrations to here. Uh, Everyone's going to have to be in on it. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, You know, currently, I think China emits more than the EU and the United States uh, combined. Well, what will we be asking developing countries to do? Uh, So under a program, like, let's not, I don't want to get too caught up in the technical details here. But this is China's emissions trajectory under a kind of business-as-usual scenario where it didn't do any, where it just kind of didn't engage in any carbon policy. Here would be its emissions trajectory if the world was aiming at 550 parts per million, which is high, you know higher than the scientists would like. Uh, and the filled-in area is how much we would effectively be asking China uh, to reduce their emissions. Uh, I did in a short paper a little exercise trying to figure out, well, what would the loss of GDP be uh, if you did this? And if you used a 5% discount rate, and this is going out to 2,100, we'd be asking China to give up about $51 trillion uh, of, uh, uh, of GDP. That's like a, uh, a full year's worth uh, of GDP uh, in the United States currently. So it's an enormous, uh, it would be enormously costly uh, to engage in this. Uh, now, this doesn't account for any benefits, say, of also reducing particulates. So this is a straight GDP figure. Okay. So now here we're going to come to having, a, uh, having walked through this and hopefully made you uh, slightly concerned. Uh, I want to talk about why do things look this way? Uh, why, why are we on this path? And my argument, which I made at the outset, is that it's due to our energy pricing policies. uh, And that in particular, our energy pricing policies cause poor supply. that's holding back growth. Uh, They strain our budgets. That's our government budgets. Uh, They increase inequality. I'll explain that one in a minute. Uh, And they lead to an excessive reliance on fossil fuels. Uh, And those fossil fuels are... Leading to shorter lives and producing greater climate change, as we just talked about. So let's just go through this. Uh, so this might be poor organization under my on uh, my part, but under fact seven, there's going to be three main points I want to make. Uh, the first is failing to correct, to collect the revenues uh, that are so failing to correct the charges quite frequently distribution companies, particularly in developing countries, send guys a bill, and people only pay, either don't pay it or they pay some portion of it, and that loss in revenues, my argument is going to be, causes really low levels of supply. So think about running a business where uh, every time you sold a product that costs a dollar, you got back 50 cents. It's going to be very, very hard to stay in business uh, like that. One does not even need a degree from the LSE for that. Uh, to understand that so let 's just take a look at this. Uh, repayment rates are really low in developing countries, and that leads to kind of a circular debt uh, which and that circular debt uh, there's there 's many steps along that circle, uh, but uh, that vicious circle, but it starts with the distribution company provides electricity. The household doesn't pay for it. The distribution company is now on the hook for the electricity they bought. Uh, One way or another, they go to the government and ask the government for it to be backfilled. So it has to be backfilled. And who pays for it in the end? The people. Uh, They pay for it through taxes. Of course, it's not the people who use the electricity. Uh, It's just regular taxpayers. Uh, And that's a really tough way to run a business, and the consequence is uh, that when one adds up the total electricity transmission and distribution losses, uh, which includes some technical factors, uh, you can see there's really high rates uh, of these losses. Uh, so in OECD countries, it's about 6%. Uh, you know, According to the data I was able to get, in Pakistan, it's maybe 17%. In India, it's 21%. Uh, in Z- Zambia, it's maybe almost 23%. Uh, and this uh, le- makes it very difficult for the distribution companies. And the way they handle that, this circular debt, is they restrict supply. If you know you're going to lose 50 cents every time you sell something that costs a dollar, you just sell less of it. And I, you know, this is, does not meet the standards of evidence that we always strive for uh, in academic settings, but I found this, in this really a compelling graph, uh, and at least suggestive. And on the y-axis, we've got kilowatt hours of consumption per capita. So that's the, uh, so remember the United States uh, average kilowatt hours uh, cons- uh, consumption per capita is about 13,000, that's our Mr. Blue Dot. Uh, and then on the x-axis, we've got aggregate transmission and distribution losses and what's striking about this graph is that once you get above a certain level uh, of aggregate transmission and distribution losses it's you don't see any countries uh, to first approximation who have very high levels uh, of consumption uh, per kilowatt hour now there's a lot of factors going on at once here but it strikes me that there's something there Uh, and the common sense Uh, that it's very, very difficult to run a business when you only are able to charge uh, half or 80% of what the cost is of producing it. All right. The second part of the pricing problem is that energy subsidies are really huge. uh, And although they're often explained or uh, motivated as a way to uh, engage in redistribution, they do a very bad job of targeting the poor. Uh, And So this is a busy graph, but for a bunch of countries here, on uh, this axis, we've got uh, the consumption subsidies uh, for energy. So you would read this as Iran spends about $80 billion a year on subsidies. And then the red dot, which can be read against this axis, is that as a fraction of GDP. And it's astonishing. For Iran, that's like 15% of GDP. Uh, and I've lined up uh, uh, the, the countries here. And you can see that uh, a lot of countries have very, very high levels of these subsidies as a share of GDP. Now, as a GDP, percentage of GDP, it's always a little bit hard to know what that means. So I figured I would take the ratio of the energy subsidies uh, to what they spend on uh, the military. Uh, and you can see this is another way to show really extraordinarily high levels uh, of subsidies for energy, uh, in Iran it's uh, seven. The ratio of uh, energy subsidies to military expenditures is seven to one. Uh, Bangladesh it's four to one, uh, and you, you can read uh, your your favorite country there. Um, it totals about six hundred billion dollars uh, that the world spent on that right now. Now, how much of that actually makes it to the poor guys who are maybe not in the back of people's minds, but certainly on the public face of it are often uh, the people who are touted as the guys who are going to benefit the most from this. Uh, And it turns out when you break it down by natural gas, only 6% of those subsidies make it uh, to the the lowest 20% income group, about 9% in electricity, and about 10% in gasoline. Uh, So here's a very, very expensive thing that governments do They cause energy prices to be really low, uh, strains their budgets, and actually exacerbates inequality by giving rich guys, relatively rich guys, uh, something that you don't give to poor guys. Okay, and then uh, the third part of our energy pricing policies that poses a challenge and helps to, I think, create... Uh, the problems that we are having is that we don't price pollution uh, and we don't uh, so let's call it air pollution particular pollution uh, and we don't price climate the, the climate damages associated uh, with the release of CO2 and that returning to our earlier theme favors fossil fuels so this is some data from the United States uh, here's the production cost of fossil fuel based electricity This is uh, evidence of what I was saying earlier. Uh, It costs, from an existing coal plant, it costs about 3 cents, 3.2 cents to produce a kilowatt hour. A new coal plant costs more because of regulations that uh, require them to install pollution abatement equipment. A new natural gas plant is about 5.5 cents. And then you get to the zero carbon or uh, very low uh, uh, carbon and or uh, particulate sources of energy. And you can see those are two, three, sometimes even four times as expensive. And so that's constantly pushing us, pushing the world uh, to choosing fossil fuels. Now, what would happen if we actually priced uh, what the economists like to call externalities, the particulates that comes from using fossil fuels and the changes in climate? You'd have a completely different picture. Uh, This is the United States. It's going to differ depending on each country's resources. But at least in the United States, suddenly the coal plant that was, you know, you couldn't stop running is now out of the money. Uh, And it's not just that. Uh, A new nuclear plant actually looks like it might be competitive with coal. Uh, We'd still use a lot of natural gas. Uh, And these distorted prices are leading us to choose fossil fuels. Okay, so let me try and uh, wrap up here. So I think there's three policy implications that come out of this, uh, and as I said, they were all foreshadowed by our picture of uh, this guy riding his bike. I think this is Shanghai, but I'm not quite sure, and somewhere in China. Okay, the first is there's a virtuous circle between uh, repayment rates. Energy supply and growth. So whatever you're charging, if you're able to collect it, uh, that helps increase supply, uh, and that helps with, uh, ultimately uh, with growth. Um, I think there's potentially very large benefits uh, to countries finding inc- ways to increase uh, their repayment rates. The second is, and that's the that's repayment rate for whatever it is they charge. Uh, the second is energy subsidies are expensive uh, and they exacerbate uh, inequality. There's really an excellent opportunity uh, for countries to replace these subsidies with direct redistribution. Um, as advances in technology have produced, like the UID in India and uh, uh, mobile banking and all kinds of things like that, one can target resources to the people you intend them to go to. Uh, and then achieve whatever redistributive uh, goal the country had while pulling these huge subsidies uh, off of their budget. Uh, And uh, that's both good and it allows more targeted uh, redistribution. And it also, uh, as everyone in this room knows, when prices are too low, people consume too much. Uh, So I think a gallon of gas in Venezuela is six cents. So what are they doing with all that gas? You know, People are driving one block, uh, and it's because it's basically free. And so getting rid of energy as a way to subsidize uh, poor folks, you can achieve that redistributive gain while at the same time bringing in energy prices up to levels that better reflect uh, their costs. And then uh, the third policy implication is that pricing energy based on the full social costs costs, offers opportunities uh, to improve health uh, and reduce the rate uh, of climate change. And so that means building in uh, the damage, the health damages from particulates into the pricing of fossil fuels and building in, uh, if countries choose, so choose, building in uh, climate damages. Okay, Uh, so let me conclude though, uh, one of the wonderful features of the IGC uh, that Robin and everyone here has helped build is this interaction between research and policy Uh, and so that was great. I gave three policy recommendations they're at a super high, they're at a pretty high level uh, and I think the challenge for us researchers, the IGC, is to find ways to take those and tune them to the particular setting of different countries uh, and produce research that t- turns these high-level ideas uh, into practical policy. And so, indeed, I think that's what we plan to talk about uh, on this panel, uh, and then we'll answer some questions. But that's uh, this was my presentation.
1: to do is i want to make sure we have um half an hour and i want to make sure you guys uh, get to ask some questions so what i suggest that we do is starting with sanjay singh from bihar if he can reflect on that challenge uh, uh, put forward by michael, michael. of how these uh, high-level policy suggestions might translate for bihar and try to restrict yourself to five minutes so we'll get the panel to you and then i will open immediately to the floor so that we have an open discussion Because it's a tradition at the LSE that you need to make sure that people in the audience uh, get some time to to ask questions. So let's begin with uh, Sanjay.
3: Uh, Thank you. Unlike uh, Professor Michael, who is a teacher in economics, I've been a student of economics, having done my masters from uh, Delhi School of Economics and landed by default into energy sector when the Honourable CM in 2013 put me into this energy sector to doing some work. So right now I am basically a practicing energy economist and I thank IGC for giving me this opportunity to have come here. See, as far as uh, uh, the point which Professor Michael was making, that energy is critical to economic growth. I don't, I don't think anybody can disagree to that. And Bihar is the best example to demonstrate this cause and effect relationship between energy and economic growth, energy and poverty. Bihar, with a per capita consumption of 122 as you saw in the, in the, in the, in the table, which is one of the lowest, which is the lowest in, in India, also happens to be the most poor state in India. So that cause and effect relationship between energy and economic growth ...is quite clearly evident from that. Now coming to... ...he made a hypothesis... ...that poor supply... ...leads to poor recovery. In fact... ...when you are comparing poor supply and poor recovery... ...you are comparing only the developing countries. It would be interesting to see... What is the trend in the developed countries? In fact, we in Bihar have started with a, clearly, with a, with a completely new philosophy. Poor recovery is, not, is because, because of poor supply. It is not that poor supply is because of poor recovery, but I put forth this proposition that poor recovery is because of, because of poor supply. And I think once we improve the supply... The recovery also will improve, and when we compare the developing countries with the developed countries, i can you can clearly see that relationship. you increase the quality, you improve the quality of supply, your repayment will automatically increase it will improve That was one point which I wanted to make quite often we, we start with this is assumption in the, in the in the energy sector that you know poor recovery leads to poor supply poor supply leading to an, uh, again poor recovery i think i don't agree with that coming to uh, 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 <coughs> yes fossil fuels the implication on the on the environment is again uh, undeniable but but I have two, three points to make in this regard. In India, what we have is, we have started with this regulation of renewable power obligation. So it's not, it. every state has to have an obligation, minimum obligation of 30% of renewable power in its entire power portfolio. So that's one way of... Uh, you know, increasing the renewable, the non-fossil uh, fuels uh, in this energy sector, there's a, when we talk about pricing for this pollution created uh, implication on the environment, there is a question. On whom do you load this price? If you look at the map of uh, India, it was the northern and the eastern part which is basically you showed as, as the red area. This is the area which is actually generating uh, uh, electricity. The, the generating units are located in this area. Now, whom, on whom do you load that price? Do you load also on the area which is paying for it? That's a very important question. We'll have to, before we you know, load this price, uh, uh, we'll have to answer that question also. In fact, in India, we are having this dilemma. The states which are located in the northern part of India, eastern part of India, they say that we are generating electricity at the cost of environment in our area, whereas the electricity which is being generated is used in the other part of the country. Therefore, how do we load that price? Yes, we have the developing countries, we do have the problem of access. Uh, a classic example is Bihar, where almost 40% of the households do not have access to electricity. We are trying to improve upon the situation. But here again we have a question. These are the areas which are far-flung areas. These are the areas which are inaccessible areas. And there is a question of public investment. These are the areas where until unless we come up with huge public investment in the energy sector in these areas... I think we may not be able to improve the connectivity in these, in these areas. So when we talk about private and public investment, we should remember that these are the areas where, which require a huge public investment for bringing it up to the national or international level. I think to begin with, uh, I would conclude my comments at this point.
1: Thank you very much. Can we now turn to... Uh Uh, Irfan Elahi from Pakistan.
4: Thank you very much and uh, thank you very much Mr. Michael for uh, such a thought provoking uh, presentation here. (coughs) Now to discuss this, uh, the issues which have been raised in the presentation, I would like to uh, highlight a little bit of uh, background. (coughs) There is on one hand a need of energy because you need it to grow further. In our country, we are losing 2% of our GDP because of lack of energy. We have a demand of about 17,000 megawatts and a supply of about 13,000. So out of that, 4,000 megawatts shortage of energy causing a loss of 2% in GDP which is uh, in my province is roughly about $280 billion dollars and uh, which is about a job loss of 400,000 people every year. So th- this is the cost which we are paying for not having energy. On the other hand, there are constraints what kind of energy is to be produced. We have a mix of energy of hydro gas, uh, now solar, some bit of coal, nuclear and all these, uh, There's a mix of energy. And that mix has a very high cost. Now first point which Dr. Michael has taken up is the recovery of the cost of whatever energy we are supplying. And whatever cost. We are at present for every one kilowatt hour, which is called a unit of energy, we are subsidizing it about three rupees, which is about three cents uh, per kilowatt hour of energy. So whatever 13,000 megawatts we are supplying, one can imagine the amount of subsidy going into this. And poor supply or more supply, what our experience is, we have eight distribution companies, and. Uh, All of them have a similar pattern, in winters and summers, we have different supplies and difference of demand and supply gap. But whatever the gap is, the companies which are performing better, they continue to perform better and the companies which are performing worse, they continue to do so. Which means that maybe the poor recovery, the reason for poor recovery lies somewhere else. And that somewhere else could be a poor regulatory regime, uh, lack of monitoring, and political will to recover from all who are using the energy. So I think if we concentrate there, then at least we'll be able to recover at three cents less the uh, cost of energy which we are supplying. The second question uh, came up regarding subsidizing it. I totally agree that the regime of subsidy, uh, subsidy is what? It's a pro-poor initiative and of course the studies have shown that poor get hardly any, uh, 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 any share in the pie. Maybe in our country it's about 12 percent of that because we have slabs for subsidy. If you use 100 uh, units per month, so you have a different rate. If you use 200, it's a different rate, and 300, it's a different rate. But ultimately, anybody who is using 4,000 units per month, he is also given the advantage of those slabs. So, so that is why the subsidy, the incidence of subsidy, uh, hardly goes to the poor. So, just the uh, regulate actions or corrective actions in regulation of this subsidy would probably or should uh, get rid of this problem and it is more targeted towards the poor uh, and, and, and the rich people they have to pay the full cost. Now why couldn't we recover the full cost? Because Uh, Historically, from 1980s onwards, we have been depending more on fossil fuel plants, and mainly the oil plants, oil-based plants, because they were easy to install, quicker to install, and oil was, in international market, the cost of oil was uh, not very high, and that was a very viable option. But at this particular moment, for our countries who are importing oil, who are net importers, fossil fuel in fossil fuel oil is a very expensive option and uh, let, just to give you an example, we are uh, uh, this oil based plants are costing eighteen cents per unit to us. The gas is costing about 5 cents per unit. Solar is costing 17 cents. So this is the kind of uh, uh, amount which we pay. Hydel is costing about 2 cents a unit. So in the energy mix, it's costing us about 15 to 16 cents, and we are recovering about 12 cents, like I said. So if we want to recover the full amount, and if we want to avoid all kind of... Uh, Uh, wastages, etc., then we need to lower the energy mix cost. And how can we lower that? By introducing those energy production methods which have lesser cost of production. For example, coal has nine cents cost of production. So for our country, probably coal, gas, hydro are the best options to reduce the cost of energy mix and uh, consequently to recover the maximum cost and avoid subsidies. So that is inevitable. Now climate change of course it has an impact on climate change but then uh, what is the impact and how long will it take to cause that impact which we are anticipating vis-a-vis what advantages do we have to induce that energy and do have some kind of mitigating impact uh, with the passage of time? Like, for example, in one of the graphs, uh, it was shown that with increasing temperature, the agricultural productivity is reduced and mortality increases. But my question would be here that... Oh, with the change in temperature, the cropping pattern also changes. The farmers change their cropping pattern and go towards those crops which give you, which need more temperature. And if that factor has been counted, that is fine. But if it has not been counted, then maybe that change in cropping pattern maintains the agriculture productivity there with the pasture of time. And similarly, in case of mortality, maybe adaptation factor is counted or not. I don't know in that study. But if that is counted, then probably it may not have that impact on mortality as well. But I leave it to that because I don't have any knowledge of this, that what calculations have gone behind that. But what I need to say is that we need to have a balanced approach. We need to look after the climate and we need to protect that but up to that extent uh, and at the same rate with which uh, with which it is causing the impact because what we see is that it will take about I don't know, 100 years from this graph to increase, or 50 years to increase by one degree temperature. So that much mitigating effort should always be there, because energy is definitely needed to survive, to grow, and to uh, the, 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 the use these funds for your social uh, sector development like health and education and for further innovation to mitigate these uh, impacts from climate changes. Thank you very much. I think I've taken a little more time. Than Thank was you very the... much. <laughs> 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 then, uh,
1: finally we have uh, uh, Kaikus Ahmed from, from Bangladesh.
5: Thank God, I'm the last one because uh, when I was listening to Michael, I was kind of like hypnotized, and I forgot what was I, I was uh, planning to tell. So since they basically brought me back to the reality. Well, um, energy. If I give you a you know a practical example, the need for energy is one of the. If I give you a very uh, political answer in that, in a sense that. You see, we had a very farcical election, you know, uh, everybody knows. And one of the reasons, you know, that government is surviving is the progress they made in energy. So um, I think energy is critical, and uh, everybody understands its uh, uh, need, starting from, like, layman to up to the uh, highest level. But again, as Michael raised, you know, who is getting the benefit? However, just to um, give you a uh, you know um, simple idea about what I just want to give you the you know Bangladesh perspective is you know we are growing faster and um, we are also um, you know mechanizing in agriculture starting from the agricultural mechanization up to the you know um, manufacturing so that requires energy but the thing is that. What can we do? At the moment, as I think, uh, I mean, our case is also the similar, like Pakistan and I think uh, Bihar, and especially Pakistan, you know, we focused mostly on fuel, which was easier to implement, uh, uh, install, quick, but it is very expensive. Now we are focusing too much on coal, which is, again, very risky in the sense that we don't have enough, anything. I mean, we have... Very little, but um, we are uh, depending on uh, mostly on um, imported coal. I just give you one uh, example that we have in our plan is now our uh, 89% of our power power generation from gas. And we are running out of gas. uh, To the best of our knowledge, we don't have enough. And uh, 3.53, around 4%, I think, is, is coal-based. Now, what is our plan? Our plan is, again, for coal, is going to be um, around more than 50% on coal. Again, again, as for your demonstration, it is again a killer, you know, uh, mission that we are going to implement. Now if we want to consider that well that is causing pollution then we have a common sentiment in uh, Bangladesh because in the uh, climate change arena uh, I think all of you know that Bangladesh is the worst victim and uh, anyhow people in Bangladesh has an idea that well the world is basically victimizing us but we are planning to victim ourselves very soon, too. <laughs> so they are, they are, you know, um, they are asking some sort of, like, you know, uh, the world, since they have created this, you know, and, uh, you know position, situation, they are going to rescue us. I think this is where some sort of, like, you know, research and practical research is needed to identify that we have to solve our problem Maybe you know, global alliance can help us, but they are not going to rescue us. So um, I think this is one of the um, points that I wanted to raise. And um, we, are, we have focused too much, especially nowadays I think we, in developing countries we are focusing too much on generation, that means increasing supply. But there's a high potential if we go, you know, uh, consider the demand management side, because there are lots of means or ways that we can reduce our demand through efficient energy use. And in Bangladesh, we are focusing on that. But again, these are the sort of like exercises in academic arena we are not being able to, uh, well, we are developing a master plan on that, but I am not sure why, I mean, at the end, what Michael has pointed out is that how can we bring this into practical, you know, uh, policy adoptions? So, I just wanted to say is that all these things are very much important, but the thing is that Sometimes we fail to consider some of the, you know, issues, economic issues, as, you know, uh, all of us deal with economics here, is that, you see, as I pointed out, it's almost 80, uh, I always forget how much, I mean, majority of our production is now based on gas. Now, there's an opportunity cost of providing gas like we have built fertilizer factories, which is eating up our gas, and whether that was most efficient or not. So the point I want to make here is that there are issues, certain issues that we can consider, and at the end, I think there are practical solutions that we might find, But again, these are the issues that we have to uh, deal with seriously. And uh, the lastly, I wanted to point out is that we were discussing before is about developing a regional market like uh, India, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Nepal, we are very much near to each other. And we know that the clean energy is hydro energy and it is also cheap and Nepal and uh, Bhutan has high potential and their demand is quite low and we are planning to you know, import. And recently actually we proposed to Bhutan and Nepal that we are going to invest there and uh, you know, uh, they can satisfy their own demand and also the, they can uh, export the excess you know, uh, production to us. So this is one thing that we are trying to develop. I hope since we are serious and then we can also find a solution because, you know, as a human being we are quite intelligent and at the end of the day we come up with better solutions. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, so in, in the interest of time efficiency, I'm going to put this out to the floor. So could you raise your hand if you want to ask a question? we're going to only have space for three questions, and then I'm going to give the last word to uh, Michael. So first, the gentleman uh, up on the aisle there, could you say who you are uh, before
6: you – and wait for the mic. Um, thank you. I'm Shabrak Nyakun. I work as an energy economist for the UK National Grid. And um, I do have um, a contribution and then a question. Um, there's evidence of the very strong link between energy growth and um, sorry, economic growth and energy demand. But um, that is most often been overlooked by policymakers. Um, and so what happens particularly um, that when economic growth is kind of expanding, um, policymakers don't really pay attention to trying to look at the potential impact will have an energy demand to be able to map out possible supply scenarios to deal with that. And I believe one way we could probably help address that issue is um, adopting a strategy or approach that is um, similar to what we have probably in the UK uh, market, because I do get involved in the, um, the energy strategy and policy for the UK market as part of my work. And what we do is that, annually, we have a consultation process. Um, Doing which we bring experts from industry, um, government, as well as the private sector to bring forward their propositions and based on that we then formulate axioms based on which we then map out those supply scenarios. So it becomes an all-inclusive kind of approach and that I think could be helpful for other energy markets in other countries if they want to do the same. Now to my question. um, It might not sound very melodious to the environmentalist. Um, But I think, um, as somebody who believes in green futures myself, we've got to face the economic facts. And my question is, should coal play a significant part in the future generation mix for the African power market? And um, I ask this question because um, there are a lot of initiatives going on, um, particularly the African power um, initiative, to invest in generation, to be able to bridge the gap between supply and demand. But um, I, I realize much of it might definitely go into renewables, and I do not doubt the um, potential on the African continent. But um, what will happen is that so, and as much as investors want to always get their money back for whatever they invest in... Um, can, you, can, you average, just, uh, can you finish the question, please?
1: Okay. So it, The question, just to repeat, is should coal play a big part in energy generation in Africa, is yeah, that right? That's the question, okay. Yeah, that's a question, yeah. Um, Could we have the lady uh, up on the right there? Uh,
4: Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much for a very uh, informative uh, speech. I'm Anuradha from LSE. My question is, in the view of the linkages with climate change, uh, with fossil fuels and climate change, uh, what would be your position on... uh, the nuclear power especially the civilian nuclear deal that the, uh, that india is following uh, civilian nuclear
1: policy okay so this gentleman has kept his arm up all continuously for about 3 minutes so i think you get the last uh, you get the last uh, question so this gentleman in the front
5: still up <laughs> i
7: can't feel my arm anymore um, I'm Kieran Stopforth from Sorry, Bloomberg. Sorry, can you say who you are? Yeah, I'm Kieran Stopforth from Bloomberg, New Energy Finance. Um, I just wanted to uh, to raise a point about renewable energy. Um, the cost of solar has fallen at least 15% since 2008. In many places around the world, rooftop solar competes with grid electricity prices. So we saw the the cost chart. um, It's an evolving picture. And in some cases, although the cost of generation of coal is lower, uh, for rooftop PV, you know, the cost of the electricity that you're buying from the grid, uh, a solar panel on your roof can can compete with the grid electricity price. Um, For the world that doesn't have access to, to energy, Distributed solar could be a cost-competitive solution um, that doesn't rely on building out the grid. And there are a few companies like m and Azuri Technologies. So m has installed uh, 80,000 solar home systems across East Africa. Azuri is at a similar level. Um, so I think I think I would almost be tempted to add an eighth trend. Um, recognizing this tremendous momentum of installations and, and cost of renewable energies. Um, and, uh, you know, just to say that, that clean energy is actually one of the big trends that's going to be shaping the energy sector um, in the coming few years.
1: Okay, so Michael, over you, to you for the, the the final word from all the sure. questions from uh, the panel. So let, the, let
2: me just say to the panel, uh, you know, it's an honor to sit here with you guys. Uh, Robin and I uh, study policy. You guys do policy. Uh, and uh, I think we would both be excited to have opportunities to work with any of you uh, going forward. Uh, so there's a couple questions. Uh, I think, should coal play a significant role? Uh, should What is uh, my position on nuclear? <laughs> uh, you know, I think... What I tried to highlight is that all these different energy sources—and you know roughly the same question about the Nobles, all these different energy sources have different costs uh, and benefits. The you know the advantage of coals that can produce a kilowatt hour uh, electricity very inexpensively. Its cost is that it comes bundled with these terrible health problems and climate change. Uh, nuclear, you know, just ten years ago it looked like the world was breaking nuclear's way uh, and then everything went against it. Uh, the materials started, the cost of materials went up. was um, it uh, Yeah. Uh, fracking happened, completely knocked nuclear out of the game. Uh, so it's, you know, the problem with nuclear is that it's just not cost competitive. Uh, and then there is this excellent issue about renewables and so you know I will this is a completely unfair response, and then i 'll try and give a fair response. so the unfair response is that renewables are always five years away from being cost competitive <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, you can shake your head, <clears throat> but it 's true at the end of the day when well, you hit numbers from Pakistan right there 's sixteen cents a kilowatt hour coals nine cents yeah. um, at the end of the day. If we're going to do something about climate change, the fossil fuels have to get out of the money, I think. Or, or we have to start pr- either by pricing the externalities, like the health effects of the carbon, or the renewables have to become less expensive. Um, I know there are some isolated instances where they appear to be uh, doing you know, cost competitive. I think generically that's not the case. Uh, and it, just like what happened nuclear is partially a function of uh, fracking, I think that's also been a huge downside for uh, renewables is that uh, the bar they have to jump over, or I guess it went up, not down. And I, I don't know what to say about that. So until we start to price these externalities, uh, renewables are going to have a hard time. As I said, I think the advances in technical advances in uh, fossil fuels are of equal note, maybe even greater note, than the advances in renewables in the last so five years, noting the important declines in renewables. So these are all excellent questions, and uh, I appreciate them.
1: Okay, so I just want to close with just two, two very uh, quick comments. Obviously, it's, 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 a, it's a, a, an honor to have Michael Greenstone lecture here, both on behalf of the IGC, but also on behalf of the LSC. But I also wanted to kind of reiterate what Michael was saying, which is that the hard work it's being done by these gentlemen. So to give you a sense of what I mean, we've been working with the energy department in Bihar for about three years. And uh, Sandeep Padrik, who's also an IS officer, was the energy secretary uh, before, and, and more recently Amrit Padhyaya. When they started to raise prices and make people pay for the electricity, the commitment was such that they actually had officers who were implementing these changes taken hostage. So there was an elite military compound and they'd never paid their electricity bills. They told you, you have to pay your electricity bills. They were not happy. So they're really facing you know, extreme pressure because of course when you haven't paid for something for a long time paying for it is extremely painful. But it's a mark of how important this is viewed within uh, Bihar that they've overcome those pressures and are continuing you know, with, with, those, uh, with those reforms
2: so If I, think, I could intervene Ram, you know, and it takes that kind of leadership to see the long run growth potential, yeah. that's the name of it
1: So going back to the IGC and sort of the model, we've spent a, a few hours with Irfan Alahi today hoping to get some work going in Pakistan and hopefully we'll get some work going in, in Bangladesh at some point but it's really to open to you guys that we're open. This is not a big area within economics, but we very much want more research going on here, including in the areas that have been mentioned on you know, alternative sources of energy and so forth. So I'd like to sort of close by thanking the panel for their illuminating remarks, and finally to Michael for giving us a sort of tour de force through the, through the field of sort of energy and growth. Thank you very much.